We're going to find ourselves this morning in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 13, which is coincidentally where we left off last time. Um, and so as you get there, um, I'm going to read from uh, 13 down to the end of the chapter, and then we will kind of go back and take a look at some things um, in the text. So it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of text this morning, but um, let's prepare our hearts to see what it is that Lord, the Lord would speak to us. Through his word, and I would like to pray one more time because of my um, absolute exhaustion. I'm going to be honest with you this morning that I will definitely get out of the way of this message and have the Holy Spirit speak to me this morning. So let's pray one more time. Father, um, I pray right now that as just as Joe said in the beginning, that you superintend your word, that your Holy Spirit is the one that writes it the one that speaks it. Your Holy Spirit is the one that that convinces us and helps us to hear it. So I pray this morning that you would just get me out of the way and that you would speak what it is that you want us to hear this morning, that we would be changed by it, that we would not be those who look in the mirror and walk away forgetting what we look like, but we would be those that hear the word and do it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, Acts 13, I'm going to begin in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down after reading from the law and the prophets. The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with lifted up arms, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of course, this man's offspring, God, has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus As he promised before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, son of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And they found in him no guilt worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, 
as it is also is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is free from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For as the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. So last week we looked at unity in the church under and by the direction of the Holy Spirit to go and make disciples. We looked at some of the things that that looks like. Today I want to look at a detail more of how. How is it that what does this look like as you go and make disciples? What are some factors, some things that we see uh, in place that... um, that are consistent with what that gospel witness looks like as we are going out and making disciples. So to give us just a little context of the whole chapter, I want to go backwards a little bit. And so in the church, we see that leaders emerge. Men are set apart for the teaching of the word and the public proclamation of the gospel. These men were sent on a year and a half journey. If you could pull up the map there for me, uh, Thomas. They're sent on a, a year and a half journey. They begin in Syria. They travel through what is modern-day Turkey. Then, when they do this, they bring this report back of all the Lord had done back to the church in Antioch, Syria. These men, they found common ground with those outside the local church context, yet they were met by opposition. The teachers, though, they did not waver in the message. And the ones to whom God sent them were converted. I want us to be careful to hear that. The ones to whom God sent them, they were converted. God sent them for a specific person to hear the message. Those that God intended to hear, receive, and obey the message were indeed converted. To me, as I look at this, this is really good news. 
Because it's a truth that we can bank on that the gospel of Jesus Christ will prevail. It will prevail. It just may not prevail sometimes in the way that we think it ought to. Especially if you really love and care for somebody and you want them to come to saving faith in Jesus. You want so bad for them to come to faith in Jesus. And you pray for them and incessantly pray and pray and pray. Family members, people you love, neighbors. And yet they don't. And yet they don't. But you can trust this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ will prevail. That those that God intends to receive and obey that message will. It's a guarantee. He cannot, he cannot not accomplish what it is that he has set out to accomplish. I love uh, taking a look at that truth. One of the things I want to take note of is that the goal in this journey, so we listed a lot of places that, that Paul and Barnabas were sent off to. And it kind of goes in rapid succession from one place to the next place and to the next place. But what we should note is I want to note the goal of the whole journey. And the whole of the whole journey was about converting people to be believers, right? But it's also more than that. Because as he went from place to place, we should note that Paul established local churches. They became local congregations of believers who gathered together each week in each of these places that we talk about here in the scripture. Because we're going to see that down the road that, that Paul is going to write a letter to these very people that he just went and planted these churches to. In a very short time, he's going to write a letter to them, a letter of correction, a letter of, hey, this is not the gospel that you received, right? He's going to come back to this area of Galatia, and we will, this summer, look through the book of Galatians as we get there. And we see that it doesn't take very long, it doesn't take very long at all, to fall away from the simple truth of the gospel. It, it is, it's a simple truth. It's really simple. And I and you complicate this message a lot. We complicate it by all kinds of things. Because we forget one really simple, simple truth. And we talked about it last week a little bit. It is by grace that you have been saved. It is a gift of God. Not of yourself. Remember that. That's the thing that we often forget time and time again. That this salvation that I have in Christ is a gift. It was given to me by the giver of all good things. The giver of all good things gave me this gift of salvation. My understanding of who I am in Christ is a gift. I didn't earn it. I didn't work at it. It's not because I'm smart. It's not because I'm good and nice. It's not because you're good and nice. You are good and nice people. I would agree with that. But it's not because of that that you have been saved. It is because God is the giver of good things. And because of his nature, he is gracious, long-suffering, patient, merciful, and kind. He has given you the gift of salvation. He's given you the gift to even hear the word. To even hear it and understand it is a gift from God and God alone. So, I tried for years and years to, 
to mentally sort of think, I need to get my head around this. I need to get my brain around the scripture to totally understand it. And I've come to the conclusion that I was using the wrong instrument to try to understand the word of God. That if I just surrendered to him, surrendered to the fact, the idea that what is in here is the truth and it is the very word of God. And that he has the power to change me. That him by his spirit can convince me of these truths. Then I can be saved. Then I can understand. But only then. But only then. So as they're going on this journey and they're establishing these congregations. Right? These congregations should have and should and we should continue in this disciple making process. That was, was Paul's aim. As he preached the gospel and established these churches, that they would raise up new Christian leaders who would lead them, disciple them, walk alongside them so that they would continue to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then I think about this as the goal of Carleton Community Church is the same as it was of Paul planting churches and and seeking converts in this area of Galatia is that we would be discipled by Christ, that you and I would be discipled by Christ. That we would be so compelled in, in our understanding of the gospel and that free gift that we have been given. That we would walk across the aisle. That we would walk across the room. That we would walk across town. And that we would teach others to observe all that Christ commanded. That's discipleship, is it not? That we would teach all to observe that which Christ commanded. Not that we command. Not that we know what's right. Not that we know how to live and you should follow the way we live because we have it all together and we've got it all figured out. No. It's that we should teach those to observe all that Christ commanded. Simply. A simple thing that we like to complicate, that I like to complicate. And I think about this, that we only partially know the implications of the gospel. We only partially know the implications of the gospel that we proclaim. And since we only partially know, we should continue what? You guys may know exactly what I'm going to say because I've said it a billion times and I'm going to say it a billion more times as what it is that the church of Jesus Christ ought to be about. And that that is this. Since we only partially know the gospel that we proclaim, we only know partially what that implies and what that is about that we should be steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, steadfast in fellowship, steadfast in the breaking of bread, and steadfast in prayer. Because in that, we might receive training in righteousness. We might receive a deeper, personal, and global understanding of the implications of the gospel. A simple, simple truth from the scripture that I'm going to say again and again and again And not because I don't think you don't get it. Not at all. Not at all that I think you don't get it. I'm saying it again and again and again because I don't get it. I don't often get it. I get sidetracked. I get sidetracked with other things that I seem to think are important. Church things. Good things. And I I get sidetracked by them. So I have to repeat it to myself. And I have to repeat it to you that again and again and again we keep... It's simple, Saint. Keep it simple. Keep it really simple. Because I like to complicate everything. You could ask my wife. 
I, I totally like to overthink and complicate everything. So one of the things I want us to look at here again is now we're going to get started, right? Okay, so that's just, I'm just getting started. I'm just opening up. Hopefully we got time. Yeah, we did. Um, so that's just to get us started. But in order to get us to go forward, I want to still go backward just a little bit and look at the factors of how we go about fulfilling the Great Commission. So one of the things we're going to see is that fulfilling the Great Commission is a divine mandate, number one. It's a divine mandate. Number two is that the Great Commission is sent from the local church, and it's sent in unity of the Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate sender. Number three, we begin the Great Commission even to the uttermost parts of the earth with a supernatural sphere of influence, right? With this natural sphere of influence. It's a supernatural but it's, it's, in a, it's what God has given you already. It's in your home, it's across the aisle, that kind of thing. Then, that wherever we walk, we walk in open doors. We don't keep them open. We don't force them open. We walk in doors that God has already opened. We don't force this. God is opening doors. Our heart is to be sensitive and obedient to walk in the things he's already opened for us. Then as we do, remember this, as you proclaim the gospel, as you are preaching the gospel to your friends and your neighbors, as you are um, investing in your normal sphere of influence, and as God is moving you out, remember this to present the entire counsel of God's word. We must present the entirety of God's word, not bits and pieces. It must be the entirety of God's word. Then we need to remember the context of our proclamation. Where are we at? Who are we with? What is their understanding? To see, to preach the entire um, counsel of God, we must remember that in our context today, one of our big struggles today is that people in general, in our world anymore, don't see the world in a big story. They don't see a big story that they are part of. Right? And the Bible is a, is a big story. That's eternity past to eternity future. Right? So we must remember that in our context, they might not have a frame of reference to see that big story. Because people are pretty content today to live for this moment without the thoughts of the future, without any thoughts to their connection to the past. Right? So we must. Remember that in that context, that connect them to their past, connect them to the future, right, in this full story. And then lastly, as we think about what it is that we are doing when we proclaim the gospel, we need to understand this, that some will be really glad at what you proclaim to them. When they hear it, they will hear good news and be really, really glad. Other people will hate you for it. Other people will despise you. Other people will think you're foolish. Usually what people think, as I proclaim the gospel to somebody who doesn't want to hear it, is that I'm mean. They think I'm being mean. Because I'm telling them the truth. I'm not telling them my truth. I'm telling them this is the truth. And your spirit must deal with that. And because our spirit must deal with that, we hate the messenger of that message, right? 
We want to kill the guy that just told me that I need to change, that I'm not right with God. I, I want to kill that guy because I don't want to hear it, right? Well, we must remember, though, that, as I said before, that the gospel, who it is going to be received by, there is no doubt that those that God is going to convert is going to convert. You can trust that, right? So you can assuredly say all that you need to say boldly because it is the truth. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He actually came and lived on this earth. He actually bore your sin and my sin. He actually bore that for us. He actually, after three days, rose from the dead by the hand of God himself, raised up his son. His son is now seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for you and for me. That truth we can trust. If the God of the universe can raise his son up from the dead, the God of the universe can certainly save those that are lost. Can't he? You and I can't do that. You and I can't do that. So as we look at this this morning, I'm going to back up a little bit again to our divine mandate. So back in chapter 13, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So you see this, this is a divine mandate. You see in verse 4 that they were sent from the local church in the unity of the Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate sender. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. You see, as we begin again, I want to emphasize this. We begin the Great Commission, even in the uttermost parts of the earth, within the natural sphere of influence that we have. In, in 13 verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They, claimed, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. That's where they began the gospel. That was their natural sphere of of influence. Right where you live is where the gospel begins, I would say. And I would say that that is true of us who were saying, I'm not a disciple maker. I'm not a preacher of the gospel. Yeah, you are. Right where you live. Right in your context. In your house, in your workplace, in your home, in your school. Yes, indeed, you are. If you look ahead at 13, 13 through 15, we see, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But when they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. So you see again that as they go out, they go into that natural sphere of influence first. Well, see, it starts not necessarily with those that are... The church it doesn't start necessarily with the good. It doesn't start with the righteous. But it starts here with those that have some fear and some understanding of God. See, they don't start in contrast. They don't go first, say, to a bar to preach the gospel. Right? They don't go there first. They go to people who have some knowledge of God first. But they don't have saving faith. They go to people who are not necessarily saved, but they are people who necessarily believe that there is a God. 
But believing that there is a God and believing God are two different things. <laughs> Entirely. You can believe in God and be headed straight to hell. But to believe God himself, to believe the truth of the gospel, that is what necessarily saves us. And remember that in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, what does it say there? It says that there is no other name by which we must be saved, right? No other name save the name of Jesus Christ. You see, they're a believer in God and they don't even know who that God is. They believe God, but they don't know who he is. They don't even know who that God is. So we must proclaim the name that saves. We must proclaim that Jesus Christ is indeed God. Amen. The God who can save you has a name. Yep. The, God, the God who can save you, he has a name. And he's known. And his name is Jesus. That is the God who saves. And it is the only God who saves. We can see on TV, we can see in the news, we can see our president try to claim that Allah is the same God. He is not God. He is not at all God. Jesus Christ is God and God alone. It is the only name by which you can be saved. Allah can't save anybody and never has. And it's not even his desire. It's not even his desire. So, Let's look at 13, 15, and 16. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Saul, Saul, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, You see here that he's walking through an open door. He's walking through an open door. He's there preaching Christ in the synagogue. They may not have even received that gospel message. But he says to them, they say to them, if you have any word of encouragement, would you share it? That's the open door. That's the open door of the message that Paul begins. So you see, as he begins this text and he goes through from 17 through 41, that he declares to them the full gospel he tells them the full entirety of the counsel of the word of God and who Jesus is. As he begins in 17, he says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of his people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about four years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that... He gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised him up, raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of course, this man's offspring has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem, 
and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him no guilt in him worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. You see, there's the full gospel. The entire counsel of God includes all that God did in creation, all that God did in setting apart, separating his people, Israel, his ever-working plan of redemption as it's presented in the entirety of Scripture. That's what they proclaimed to him. But ultimately, mostly what they proclaimed to him was this. Notice how they talked about David as a king. And then they went to Saul as a king. I think that in all of our preaching and in all of our proclamation, we must remember this. Is the supremacy of Christ. What they spoke was the supremacy of Christ. They talked about things that they would understand. They talked about men that they would understand and have revered. And in their message, yes, that's all true. But there's one supreme. They talk about the supremacy of Christ as a prophet, the supremacy of Christ as priest, the supremacy of Christ as king, the supremacy of Christ as both the sacrifice and the conqueror. This is most evidenced by the declaration of Christ's victory over death, by the resurrection of God. So you see, if we hear this message this morning and we are cut to the heart, then we are the elect of God. If you are cut to the heart. Let's read 32 through 41. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of God. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said of the prophets should come about you. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Do you see here, if you cannot bear it, if you cannot bear to hear, if you cannot bear to hear that message this morning, if you hate that you can't hear, that you're hearing this message, if this message is cutting you to the heart and you say, I must repent and I need God's forgiveness, well then you, my friend, are the elect of God. If you are cut to the heart this morning by hearing the truth, we don't want it to be said of us, do we? Anyone in here. I don't want it to be said of anyone who's in here this morning. I do not want it to be said that God is telling you, I'm doing a work in your days that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. 
doing a work and you don't believe it, even if we tell it to you, even if I share you good news, you're going to reject it. You're going to reject what I say. One thing I think we must remember this morning, too, is that it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. Another thing that you might remember this morning as you think about it not being about you is that you have never saved anyone. And neither have I. Here's another thing to think about as you think about it not being about you. You will never save anyone. Ever. Never, ever, ever will you save anyone. You can proclaim the truth of the gospel till you're blue in the face and you will never, ever, ever Ever, and I mean ever, you will never save anyone. It's not your job. You didn't save yourself, did you? If you saved yourself, you might be able to claim that you can save someone. You didn't save yourself. You will never save anyone. It is only God that can save. If we look at 13... Verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You see, that which God sent out, that was accomplished. Further ahead in verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who appointed them? Who appointed those to believe? Was it you? Was it me? Was it in your power to appoint somebody and say, that person should be saved? No. It's not in your power. It's not in your realm. It's not, it's not you who does the saving. It is God who appoints those to eternal life. It is God who appoints them. And again, let's think about this. Some will be glad at the gospel proclamation and others will hate you for it. John 15, 18 says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Does the world love you? Does the world around you love you? Or does the world around you hate you? Why would they hate you? Because you bear the truth. You bear the very marks of Christ in your life. They'll hate you for it. They'll tell you the truth. You tell them the truth, and they will hate you for it. One of the things that really can get us down is the fact that we shrink away from telling that truth because we know. Because you know without a doubt you're going to be rejected. You know for sure 
that you're going to go somewhere and you're going to claim the truth of the gospel and you are going to be rejected. And I don't know about you, but I have this tendency to avoid pain. I tend to try to run away from it. I tend to try to not put my hand on the hot stove when I know that it's red and glowing. I tend to not do that because I want to avoid that pain. And the same thing is, is as we are proclaiming the gospel, we know that it's going to be, it's going to come back to us in pain sometimes. But I think that's for us to remember that it's not about you. It's not about you. It's all about him. And everything else that we do is all kingdom work, right? It's all about building the kingdom of God. Those that would receive it are going to receive it. Those that God intended to hear it are going to hear it. Those that God has appointed to eternal life are going to receive eternal life. You can count on it. You can bank on it. So it's like as we're in this room and say there's a hundred people and you just proclaim the word of God. Maybe two, but say it anyway. 98 might hate you. Two will love you for it, for telling them the truth about the good news of the gospel, right? Say it anyway. Say it anyway. Because it's not about you. It's all about God. Let's look at verse 46 to 52, and then we will close. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. I want to pause there for just a second. I didn't intend to, but as, as you see this, as you proclaim this truth to people and they thrust it aside and they thrust you aside, what is it that they're saying there? They've judged themselves unworthy of the gospel. They are judging themselves unworthy of the good news. If they reject you and they reject your word, They've judged themselves unworthy to hear it. That's a good place for them to be, isn't it? Because you're unworthy and I'm unworthy. Right? That's a good place for us to be. It's a good place for us to think about sympathetically with those that are rejecting the word. They've judged themselves unworthy. That's a person God can work with. So keep preaching at it. Keep telling it. Keep proclaiming that truth to them. So behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing, and then and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I want us to see this, that you have been given a great gift. You who are in Christ today have been given a great gift. You've been given a gift of salvation. Your own salvation, that salvation, you are a partaker, a participant In God's grace. That grace was given to you that you might be a light in the world. That grace was given to you that you might shine him wherever you go. And we need to know this. That some in the world love darkness rather than light. I was one who loved darkness rather than light. But when that light shines, 
in your heart. When that light shines and you're illuminated and you see the truth of the goodness of God, that's really what that light does, doesn't it? That light that you finally see, it doesn't tell you that you're great. It doesn't tell you that you're good. It tells you that God is good. That God loves you. And God is the giver of great gifts. So these some in the world that that love darkness rather than light, they're going to hate you. And they're going to hate I. They are. And why are they going to hate you? Why are they going to hate you? Because we shine the light that Christ has given us. Because you shine the light that Christ has given you, you'll be reviled for it in places. You will be hated for it. But here's what I say to close this. Shine on. Shine on. Shine brightly. Let the glory of God fill your house, your community, your church, your workplace. Because he's shining through you. Let your light shine. You know that song we've sang a million times, right? It is so true. It is so true. Christ and his gospel will prevail in all that God has set out for it to us to accomplish. And here it is. This light that Christ has shown you that is in you is living proof. You, me, are living proof of a living God. We are living proof. So when you go out there, are you living proof? Are you living proof that God is indeed alive and at work? When you come to a church service, do you believe that God is alive and that God is at work in this place? If you do, we should be excited. We should be really, really excited that on Sunday morning we get to come into the presence of God who is alive. Who's alive in us. and Who's alive in your neighbor. Right? We also know that, that where two or three are gathered, God is there in the midst of them working. Right? He's convincing us. His Holy Spirit is convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. His Holy Spirit is at work in this room right now. That should be exciting. We should come with an expectation. I'm expecting God to do a work. I don't know what it is, but I'm expecting it. I prayed that again this morning. I was sitting here in the chair. I'm like, God, I don't know what it is that you're going to do this morning. But I know you're going to. I know you're going to work. And then I prayed again, as I said before, and you're going to have to because I can't. You're going to have to because I just can't do it. So God is at work. That's an exciting stuff. And the exciting thing is that you who are alive in Christ are living proof that God is indeed alive. And I look at your faces and I look at your lives and I, I interact with you guys and I can tell when I look in your face that Jesus Christ is alive. When I look in a brother and a sister's face and we interact with each other and I see Jesus in your face and in your life, I am convinced God is alive. When I doubt, when I'm all by myself is when I doubt. I doubt when I'm all alone and I'm in the dark place. I don't seem to hear him. Then I interact with his people and I look at them in the face and I say, God is alive. He really is alive. I'm convinced that God is alive. I am convinced he's alive. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you for this time that we can spend. I thank you that you indeed are alive in your people and that you are working. I praise you, Lord, for all that you've done. 
I praise you for all that you are doing. Empower us and equip us to shine the light of Jesus Christ wherever it is that we go this week. In your son's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.